beginning of the series today called What's Next. And for each one of us, wherever you're at, maybe you haven't even placed your faith in Jesus yet, but what's next for you? What's next in our spiritual journey and what's next for us as a church as a whole? And if you're a guest with us today, I want to just welcome you and thank you for coming. You came at a great time in the life of our church and a great Sunday getting this series started. If you wouldn't mind, we don't ask you to give any money. Uh, we're not going to make you stand up and embarrass you in some way or anything like that. But if you wouldn't mind just grabbing your worship program right now, you look in there and I'll give you some information about the church. But there's a card that we ask you to fill out called a connection card. And if you fill it out today, take it out to the first time guest kiosk. We'll collect all the cards that get turned in at the end of the day today and make a donation to a ministry that rescues people out of human trafficking. So if you'd take a moment and do that, and maybe today's your second time here. If you'd fill that card out as well and just drop it in the offering box on your way out, that would be helpful to us. But uh, I'm going to pray for us right now as you're filling that card out. And um, we're going to jump in the scriptures together in just a moment, in the book of Numbers. And so let me pray, and then we'll open up the scriptures together. Father, uh, we come before you, and uh, we ask for you to speak to our hearts right now. Each one of us, having different experiences, being at different stages of life, at different spots in our spiritual journey, and having different things that have happened in our lives over this past year, you've got different things for us in the year ahead. And I pray right now that you'd bind our hearts together as a church, and as we talk about corporately what you have for us next, you'd help us to think about how that impacts us individually, but what it means for Southbridge as a church family as a whole. We thank you for the things that you've done. You've done some amazing things, and uh, we pray that you'd do more. We just want to see your glory. We want to experience your presence. Will you please reveal yourself to us as we open your word today, even transform us so that we wouldn't become like this world, but we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind that you'd use the scriptures to transform and change our thinking to be more and more like your thinking. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we watched that video and you, and you saw those different things and it's great to celebrate that, by the way. So getting into this what's next series, I don't want you to think, it's awesome sometimes, I don't want you to think that we always just need to talk about what's next because it's great to go back to what God's done in the past sometimes. And you can revel in that, and you can glory in that, and some of you uh, maybe experienced some of the things that we were talking about. Maybe you're one of those people, the 458 people that were in an e-group, an encounter group, an engage group, an embrace group, and that was your first time really connecting with other believers, or maybe you trusted Christ, or maybe you got baptized, and that's awesome, but what's next? That is a natural question to ask, and we do it in every area of life, and so why wouldn't we do it in our spiritual life? If you get on social media, you'll see people continually talking about the next thing that's happening in their life, whether it's an anniversary coming up, a birthday coming up, and you get on all the different social medias, Instagram, Facebook, something that came up this morning before church started that I don't even know that you're all on now, and so there's just all these different things out there, but you go look at people's pictures. Right now, one of the popular things, cute pictures of your kids and their first day of school, or their first day of second grade, or their first day of third grade, or junior high, or high school, or maybe dropping them off at their college dorm room. Do you know what happens after that? Then they've got to decide what's next. Get a job or move back in with mom and dad. <laughs> Just pray, okay? Just pray they get a job. And then life keeps happening that way. There's always a next thing. And so as we talk about what God's done in the past, maybe you were one of those 36 people who prayed to receive Christ. That's awesome. Don't ever forget that. But what does God have for you next? Maybe you were one of the people in Celebrate Recovery who, who stepped out of a hurt habit or hang-up. Maybe you publicly talked about something you had never talked about, even in private before, and now you're walking a new level of freedom. What's next? Maybe you went on one of those mission trips to Panama, to Madagascar. What's next? Maybe you've been sitting on the sideline and, and trying to figure out what you want to do, and you kind of grab your coffee, and you come into church, and you sit, and you listen to Bible study, and you leave, and it doesn't make any difference. Well, what's next for you? It's time to get in the game. It's time to serve. It's time to do something different. Maybe some of you, it's time to to move to a place where you might die. Why not? What's next for you? And today we're going to talk specifically what's next for us as a church as a whole, and it will be determined by what happens in the individual lives of the people that make up this church. And today we're going to talk about a people group as a whole that were on the verge of what was next. And we're going to be in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. That's not part of our annual report. It is part of the Bible. The book of Numbers it's part of the Pentateuch, it's the first five books Penta, of the Old Testament. It's actually one book in four different parts. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We're going to be in Numbers chapter 13. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. If you have a copy of the scripture, why don't you go ahead and turn there. I'll tell you what's happening. There's a, a group, a people group. It's God's people, the Israelites in the Old Testament. It originally started when Abraham was called to come follow God out of a, a pagan group of people that was idol worshipers. And, he, and God gave him a promise that was impossible. He said, but you've got to trust me for the impossible. You come follow me. And he comes and he follows them. And he gave him a promise that even though he was older, too old to have children, and his wife was too old to have children, you're going to have descendants. They're going to more than their sand on the seashore. You're going to have so many descendants. You're going to bless this world. And those who bless you, I'm going to bless. And those who curse you, I'm going to curse. And he gives Abraham this amazing promise. 
Now we're at a place that's 430 years later. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that. It tells us that in the book of Galatians. So if you just read your Bible on your own at home, you'll learn these things. And it says about 430 years later, these people are now at a place where God's done a bunch of stuff to prepare them. They were in bondage in Egypt, and God did 10 plagues. And if you've read the book of Exodus, you've seen this. 10 plagues right before their eyes to show them, I'm freeing you, and I'm even going to use the hard heart of Pharaoh, the difficult circumstances in your life, the pain that you've experienced, and I'm going to redeem that for my glory and for your good. And he leads them out into the desert where they're now trapped by a body of water and the Egyptians coming down on them. And the sand is, you know, dust cloud is coming. They're barreling down on them. It's an impossible circumstance. And the question is, are you going to trust me? And they turn and they see that God parts the Red Sea and they walk across on dry land. And then God wipes out probably the most powerful army in the world at that time, the Egyptians, just like that. And then they get into the other side of the land and God's going to lead them into the promised land and they start going, well, would you leave us out here to die? We don't even have any food. So God gives them miraculous food called manna, which means, what is it, by the way? Because <laughs> they've never seen anything like this. What is it? And so we call it manna, manna in the desert. And then they complain about the manna, so he gives them different food. But at this point, he's protected them, he's guided them, he's provided for them, he's saved them, he's brought them into freedom. And he's done all the things he does in our lives as Christians. And now they're at the verge of making a decision of what's next that's going to be historic one way or the other. Look at it with me in Numbers chapter 13. They're on the verge of entering the promised land. And the Lord said to Moses, Moses is the leader of the people this time, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving. And you can underline that if you have a pen. You can underline that in your Bible. It's okay to write in your Bible. Giving. That's the verb to notice there. I am giving to the Israelites. Not that I'm going to set you up and show you how you can go take it. I'm actually handing it over to you. I am giving it to you. I want you to send some men in to explore the land, not so they can figure out all the tactical moves they need to make in order to be successful. I'm going to give it to you. I just want you to go see what I promised you. Send these people into the land to explore the land I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders, and that'll be 12 men then, because there's 12 tribes. Verse 3, so at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. So these aren't just random people they pick. These are leaders that they pick. And then verses 4 through 15, I'm not going to slaughter all those names. <laughs> there are 12 guys that are listed there, and they're not named Steve and Dan and Joe. Okay? You read through there. Two of them are named Joshua. One of them's named Joshua. One of them's named Caleb. And then there's like Shemua. There's like all these guys in there. We don't remember all their names. That'll become relevant later. Then verses 16 through 20, what happens is that Moses gives them specific instructions. When you 12 guys go into the land, here's what I want you to do. Check out the land. Tell me what the land is like. What's the soil like? What are the people like? And could you bring back some fruit? And so then they go, and apparently Moses liked fruit. And so they send them verses 21 through 25. On this journey, it's about a 500-mile round-trip journey on foot. It takes them just over about 40 days. And they come back, and we're going to focus in on verses 26 through 33. This is where they give their report of what they saw and then how they respond. Look at verse 26 with me. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community. That's about 2 million people. At Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. Now the fruit, they grabbed a cluster of grapes that was so big, it says in the verses in verse 21 through 25, you can read it, that they, two grown men had to carry it on a pole. So it's like the size of a, a pig, okay? It's like, this, there's a huge, it's like the size of an animal. These grapes are so big. And so uh, they reported to them, the whole assembly, and showed them the fruit of the land, these huge grapes. Verse 27, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. Not the land which God is giving us, the land which you, Moses, sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. It's exactly as God's promised. When we've seen the promised land described in the Old Testament up till this point, this has been a, a promise of blessing, milk and honey. It's productivity, it's fertility that you're going to be blessed when you go to this place. Now it's viewed as an obstacle, because look what they say next. Here is the fruit. See, there's fruit the size of a pig. There's huge fruit here. And then there's this word, but... So everything's exactly the way God promised. The land is flowing with milk and honey. The fruit, is fruit, or the fruit is huge, but the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. 
we saw descendants of Anak there. Anak was considered a, a group of people that were perhaps giants, that were very tall. They found some skeletons even of women in some archaeological digs that were seven feet tall. Some people believe that Goliath, from the story of David and Goliath, comes from the line of Anak. So the Anakites were considered giants. In other words, there's giants in the land, the walls are huge, and then they go on to say all the other people, which are exactly who God said was there before they went. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Termites. There's all kinds of ites in here, okay? <laughs> Canaanites, and they live in the sea along the Jordan. There's all these different ites. They're all there, and they're just saying that we can't do it. This just can't happen. These people are giants in the land. The walls are fortified. Then Caleb speaks up. Now, let me remind you, Caleb's one of the twelve. He saw the same people they saw. He saw the same walls they saw. He probably ate some of that fruit. So then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. <laughs> you saw the same thing we saw, right? And you're saying the opposite thing. But, there's that word again, verse 31, but the men who had gone with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. They're stronger than we are. They're like babies. They're stronger than we are. And, they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land. Now they're speaking poorly of God, because God said the land was good. They'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. And those would be people of legend to the, these folks. We read about them in Genesis chapter 6. Giant people. And so they're using hyperbole now to try and get people worked up. It says, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And so here you've got two groups of people. Later we find out there's a guy named Joshua who's with Caleb in this thought. And so there's 10 spies and there's a children's song that goes, 10 were bad, 2 were good. There's 10 spies give a bad report. 2 spies give a good report. How do they see the same thing? Give such a different report. And what you have here is a whole people group, 2 million of them. They're on the verge of what God has for them next. And God's done some amazing things to bring them to this point. He brought them out of Egypt. 10 different plagues. They see these plagues right before their own eyes and God's leading them and then in the Red Sea situation, God parts the Red Sea, they walk across on dry land, then he provides manna, he's done miracle after miracle, and he gets them to this place that now they're at a crucial point that what they do next will reveal their faith. What they do next will reveal, not define, not make, not create their faith, it will reveal the faith that they already have. And I believe, Southbridge, we're at a place where we're on the verge of what's next. And what we do next will also reveal our faith. What happens next will reveal our faith. God's done some amazing things in our, our story, in our short story as a church. But where we're at now is that what God's going to ask us to do next, and I don't even know all the details of what that's going to be. I know there will be obstacles. I know for sure it will require faith. Here's why. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's not highly unlikely it's not uncommon, it's impossible to please God without faith. And so if God calls us to take a next step, it's going to be a step of faith. And before we can talk about what's next, we've got to talk about where we're at now. Because, when, you know, before a kid goes to school, what makes that first day of school significant is that they weren't going to school the day before. So you've got to know where they're at before, and what makes, you know, college and whatever the stage of life is, you've got to know where you're at before you can talk about what's next. And so we watched that video today, and we see all that stuff that happened just in one year time period, what the youth are doing, and the different mission trips that are happening, and Celebrate Recovery, and all those different things. It's exciting, and it can be a blur that all those things are happening in one year's time frame. Well, what happens for me when I see a video like that? And it causes me to get nostalgic. I start to go back. I remember before we had any special services, you know, not just Christmas Eve services or outdoor services. We didn't have any services because we didn't have any people. I remember Southbridge when it was just a dream that my wife and I had. We were in the living room at our house in Dallas, Texas, talking about a church, and we had a dream. We have any people. I remember calling up Jason and Amanda Tovey. Jason's now your shepherding pastor. And asked them, hey, would you pray about, would you consider moving to a city that neither one of us have ever lived in before? And we want to go there and we want to accomplish this dream. We had a vision. We talked about the vision on the phone. And started recruiting people. And we talked about Raleigh-Durham. Like some people would talk about China as a mission field. Here's how many people aren't reached here. And we did the, there's about a million people in the triangle, by the way, that don't, if, they, if eternity started today, if Jesus came back today, they would be in hell. And so there's all these people here. And how are we going to go? What are we going to do? We want, to, we want them to experience Jesus Christ in such a way that their life has changed and it impacts other people. And then it was spread throughout this city. And our dream was based on Matthew 5, 16. 
that we would let our light so shine before men that people would see our good deeds. They glorify our Father who's in heaven, that we would then become a city on a hill. And so you hear us say that, and we know there's multiple cities in this area, Chapel Hill, Raleigh, Durham, but uh, Matthew chapter 5 says a city on a hill. And so we just use that language, and that's what we wanted to see happen. Because if you hear about our city, put it in our context. It's top five place to live. You know, traffic's not bad. The schools are good. There's jobs here. Housing's affordable. Like all those things. And people move here for that. And that's great. And we don't want that stuff to go away. But we don't want people moving here because of that. You know why I want people to move here? I want people moving here because God's here. They sense God's presence. And they might not even be able to say it. They might not know it. But what happens is, is that a person gets connected to Jesus. They start being redeemed. And then you start to see a light in their life. And people who don't know Jesus, they don't understand what that light is, but they know the people there are different and they're drawn to it because they're drawn to God because God's purpose, eternity in their hearts. And so they want that. And what happens is this place, as person after person after person starts to become redeemed by Jesus Christ, this place starts becoming a city on a hill where people come and they glorify our Father who's in heaven. They might not use our language, they might not use our jargon, they might not know the Christian terminology, but they're then drawn to God because of the lives that we live. And this place is transformed. That's the dream. So we came here with this dream. And we started meeting with people. And some people started to get excited about it. And I remember we had a group of about 40 people at the very beginning. All we had was a dream. We told them, don't invite anybody to church. And, and, and it wasn't reverse psychology. But they invited people anyways. But it would, and I said, don't invite people to church. We don't, we're not a church. But here we have a dream. How are we going to do this? And we started talking about those things. We launched the church in March 2007. Within three years, we had 700 people regularly attending the church, and God was changing people's lives. I remember the first outreach event we did before we even launched the church. We showed a movie, uh, the Nativity movie, and some of you watch that around Christmas time now. And then got up afterwards, just shared a simple gospel presentation, and it was like 12 or 14 people placed their faith in Christ. And from that day until that, you know, three years later, when we had 700 people, God just kept changing people's lives, saving people, transforming lives. People were reconciling relationships and marriages, and addictions were being broken. And it was exciting to see. But we got to a place where it's like, well, we got to talk about what's next. And so there we were. We were, you know, getting full at the theater and all those types of details. And so what we did is we used language kind of like, some of you might have been here then, um, that we were a young couple who was living in an apartment and was thinking about buying our first house. And we started a campaign that we called the Bridge Initiative. And we bought a piece of property. But if you remember at the time, we didn't know if we were going to buy a piece of property, buy a building, lease a building, do something. We didn't know what we were doing, but we just knew that we were going to need some money for it. And so you guys gave generously, even though the vision was like, yeah, just more of people being, lives being changed. We bought a piece of property on Glenwood Avenue, which we have a picture of. You can pop up there if you've never seen it before. It's about three miles from the front door of the movie theater. It's right at the spot where Raleigh and, and Durham come together, a real strategic place. We paid $1.46 million for that. And because of your generous giving, um, we were able to put down a hefty down payment on it. We owe about a million dollars on that piece of property right now. And, and we had people do due diligence on it at the time. We hired a group to come in and do that. And, and they gave us you know, estimates on what costs were going to be for the whole thing. And then after the due diligence was done, we purchased the property. And then later, we found out that the costs were actually going to be a lot higher than what they told us, the land development costs. And just to be transparent with you, um, what we did as an elder team, leadership team, we started, it was almost like, hey, there's giants in the land. You know, there's huge obstacles here. And so we started to scratch our heads. We thought about selling the property and uh, had people that were interested in buying it from us. Uh, there was one time where we actually looked at uh, purchasing another church building, and we talked about doing two campuses, one here and one in another spot in town. Um, we looked at buying other buildings, all kinds of different ideas. But what ended up happening, you can talk to guys on the elder team or the leadership team, they'll give you all the detailed stories if you want. As it was unanimously, we keep coming back to, we feel like God keeps leading us here, back to this property. And this is where he's got us. And so what do we do next? And, and so in the meantime, what we did is we started a campaign for building a building on that property. We called it the Whatever It Takes campaign because we wanted to do whatever it takes, even if it means financial sacrifice, so that some of those million people that are lost in our city, more and more of them would have their eternity transformed. And so many of you gave sacrificially, pledged to that. Um, we are at a place right now where in November will be two years of that three-year campaign. So we're just over 60% of the way through that campaign. It's about 61% is what I was told earlier this week is how far through the, the campaign we are. And so if you think about your own giving, it should be about 61% if you're on track. But the giving overall has been over 100%. Now let me tell you why that is. Because a bunch of people who didn't pledge have given to the project for various reasons. Some maybe you didn't know if you wanted to be a part at that time. Some of you didn't go to our church at that time, but you've seen, that and seen this and wanted to be a part of it. And so you've given. Thank you uh, for doing that. And uh, we're tracking at, for those who pledged, about 82% of those pledged have, have kept their pledge. So there's some people that are a little bit behind, um, but many people have given generously. And so as we were doing that project, raising that money, and looking at the land development costs, simultaneously one of the things that was happening is we were just wanting to tighten our belts as much as we could. 
We wanted to be the best possible stewards we could of every dollar that was given. So one of the things we did this past year is we actually fired or let go, whatever the right ter- church terminology language is, the design build firm we had before. We hired a new group that we thought could build the most cost-effective plan that we possibly could have and develop the land uh, as cheap as we possibly could and uh, still be functional for us without cutting a bunch of corners. And many of you were part of a meeting we had with them. We invited everybody who had given to this project or pledged to whatever it takes, even if they hadn't given anything, we just pledged. We invited them all to come to a meeting. We met with that group and we talked about a a church that would work for us. We've got some pictures of that today that I'd love to show you. You One in the road view. So these are conceptual, obviously. This hasn't, we didn't build it behind the trees without you seeing it. Um, there's some idea of what we're, we're thinking based on those meetings we had and talking with that group of a more cost-effective plan. And we even go into the lobby, I believe. We don't know who those people are that are shadowy people. If they ever show up, they're going to be scary. Um, some more of that. And I believe we even have an auditorium and, and children's space shot there. And uh, obviously any of these things are contingent upon continuing to have strong giving to the project. What, can we pop up the floor plan? I think we have that shot as well. There's an, that teal or bluish section over there on the right is an auditorium, about 700 seats, so more than twice the size of the one that we're sitting in right now. That middle what big open space there is a multi-use area that's also our lobby that you just saw some conceptual drawings of. And then you'll see multiple multi-use spaces as well as some children's space there that, Lord willing, would be our plan, uh, but obviously all based on uh, giving and things along those lines. But you get an idea of what came out of those meetings, for those of you who weren't in those meetings, with uh, the different folks that were there for that project. What's happened since then, I believe that was around April time frame, that's just from memory, I'm sorry if that's off, but um, around April time frame we did that, a bunch of stuff behind the scenes has been taking place. You've heard me make announcements about an audit that we recently did, it was our second audit, we did one last year, we did one this year, and for those of you who aren't familiar with that kind of thing, an audit is done so that you get somebody who's outside your organization to give objective views on how you're doing your financial practices, are they safe, are they healthy, what does the finances look like? And I'm just going to read you a quote from the, the guy that actually started the company that did our audit, David Dennison. Um, you can see his credentials on there, but it says, uh, based upon my audit of Southbridge Fellowship, I believe that the ministry is doing a tremendous job of controlling expenses, increasing cash, safeguarding assets, and strategically investing resources in the ministry and outreach to the community. I believe that your ministry is in great financial condition and look forward to seeing how the Lord expands your territory as you continue to expand the kingdom of God. Which I thought was pretty cool from a CPA, right? Isn't that neat? And uh, yeah, that's great. I want to thank um, John Cullens, our executive pastor, and he was key in getting all the documents ready and all that stuff, and our finance team that works with him um, were key in getting all those things ready for the audit. The audit obviously went great. Um, we've now presented information to multiple lending institutions. We expect here we could get information from them anytime now. Um, we expect it to be good news uh, from them in response to the, the way that things are, but uh, all that obviously by faith, um, believing those things. And then also, um, some other things have been taking place, other behind-the-scenes type stuff that you don't see and I don't talk about every week, but even this past Tuesday, um, we got information from a senior-level person at the city of Raleigh, and this was huge news and great news from my understanding of uh, bureaucracy that takes place. Even though we redesigned the building, have a different building they originally got approval for, um, they're not going to make us get reapproval, which is great. It's going to save us time, it's going to save us money, and uh, Lord willing, uh, what's going to happen is that in the next four to six weeks, Lord willing, um, I'll be able to stand up here as your pastor and tell you a date that we're planning on breaking ground on that property. And so that'll be exciting. But let me remind you of something. The building's not the vision. Connecting people to Jesus for life change is the vision. What we saw in the video of what God's done over this past year, that's the vision. What we believe is going to happen with the building is going to be a tool to allow us to have more and more people experience what you've experienced, what I've experienced here at this church. And where I believe that we're at is we're on the verge of what's next. And what's going to happen is what we do next will reveal our faith. Kind of like the Israelites here. They're on the verge of this next step, this big step for them. Everything up to this point has led to this place. And what they do next reveals their faith. It just shows what's already true. And it's interesting that you can have two people that have the exact same experience and have such diverse opinions of what's happening. Go back up in the passage in Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. It says, They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. It is an amazing land. It is the promised land. It's everything that God said that it would be. And here's the fruit. And they pull out this huge fruit. But, which is an interesting word. If you ever have someone give you good news and then say the word but, buckle up. 
It was a sunny day, but then I got struck by lightning. You're like, what are you saying? Now? He was headed for the end zone, but then he fumbled the ball. Like, it's never good after that statement, right? The land's exactly like God promised, but the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified. There's big walls. There's big people. We even saw descendants of Anak. There's giants in the land. Then there's another contrast. Jump down to verse 30. It says, Then Caleb, who was one of the twelve, who saw the big people, who saw the walls, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses. So in other words, there were two million people there. One of the ten spies gets up and starts to give the bad report. And then what happens is, then all the people start to murmur. They start to talk. And they start to get divisive. And they start to get disunified. We can't go into the land. There's giants in the land. Did you hear that? I'm not exposing my kids to giants. We're not going to. And can you imagine the conversations that are happening? And they're all talking at once. And so when I picture this passage of scripture, the best I can come up with, we don't have two million people in our family. We've got six. And so we've got four little girls. We ride around in our minivan, right? And everybody talks at the same time, just so you know. You think a pastor's family, they probably all have perfect manners. No, that's not how it happens, okay? In our back seat, in the back of our van, it's like one kid wants to tell a story, and I don't even know what they're talking about. They're just talking, like just going. And then there's another one who wants justice to come into the life of one of their siblings, not their own life. So they're telling on somebody. Somebody else has an ailment. Somebody's feeling sick. Got to have a potty break. Can I have a snack? Oh, I got my snack all over the window. Like there's just stuff's happening. They're all talking. And so then when I want, if you ever want to get anybody's attention, you say, hush! Caleb comes in. Silence the crowd. Everybody be quiet. Hush! My wife would like to patent an idea, and so I'm publicly stating it right now. Do not steal it, those of you who are very smart. We have a minivan. She wants there to be a power window between us and the kids, kind of like in a police cruiser or in a limo, and it needs to be soundproof, but we can just kind of put it up. You guys do what you're doing. We'll listen to, like, classical music and just, you know, spaghetti flying up on the thing or whatever. So it's... And so Caleb's dealing with this chaotic situation, and he comes in, and these people have told him, we can't do it. There's giants in the land. The walls are too tall. And Caleb, silence the people. Be quiet. And he said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. We walked across the Red Sea, and it wasn't even wet. Manna? You remember this? We, can, we got the, because here's the deal. Our strength has never been in our resources, and the number of people we have, and our army. It's been in the God that we have. Then we get this word again, verse 31. But, you can maybe circle those. Some of your translations say, nevertheless, yet. But, the man who had gone with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than us. Probably sounded like that in Hebrew. They're stronger than we are. And they um, spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land and they had explored. And they said, the land we explored, it devours those living in it. Now they're lying because before they said it flowed with milk and honey just a couple of verses ago. It's not devouring those people. Plus those people are giants. And if the land's devouring them, the land should be available. <laughs> it's not. So the people that we saw there, we saw Nephilim, verse 33. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. We were tiny grasshoppers, the smallest thing that they could eat in their diet be like us saying you shrimp you little grasshopper Danielson you little grasshopper <laughs> we're teeny they're big how do you have two people see the exact same thing and come to such a different conclusions well let me ask you this how many of you watched football yesterday go ahead and raise your hand don't feel guilty I'm not going to say something that makes you feel guilty okay I watched football yesterday too and, I, and we know in our church that we have a house divided we've got some NC State fans about, you know, yep, that's right we've got some UNC fans I don't even mention Duke because you haven't brought enough people that are Duke fans to church. No, nope, can't do it. No, no, no. You want me to talk about Duke, you got to bring some more Duke people to church, all right? So we did a survey. It's real facts, okay? I'm not just making this up. Some of you are blue, some of you are red, so here's the deal. Let's imagine yesterday, and I know this wasn't the game that took place. Let's imagine UNC played NC State yesterday, okay? And the red team's going into the end zone. They catch a ball in the back of the end zone. It happens really fast. The guy signals touchdown. Half the people in our church will think that he scored a touchdown and they're celebrating. Half the people in our church will say he pushed off, he juggled the ball, and his feet weren't in bounds. Like some, you saw the exact same thing. How is it that two people can see the exact same thing and come to totally opposite conclusions? It's based on your perspective before the event ever took place. 
when you're a UNC fan, you think he wasn't in because you're a UNC. It doesn't matter what actually happened. It's because you're a UNC fan. You think he's in. It doesn't matter if he did juggle the ball, if he was out of bounds, or if he threw the guy down on the ground, body slammed him, did, he, did a whole thing, and then caught the ball. You don't care. NCC fan, you just touch down. We'll take them all, all the ones we can get. So, so what's happening here? This isn't defining their faith. This is revealing what's already true. And what you see is you've got one group that comes from a perspective that's evaluating and seeing the size of the circumstances. You've got another guy, Caleb, later we find out he's got a friend with him named Joshua. And they're evaluating the circumstances based on the size of their God. And so the question becomes for us, when God taps you on the shoulder and asks you to take a step of faith, whatever it is, get baptized, trust Christ as your Savior, go to the mission field and die. Decide that you're supposed to give away your retirement fund for something to happen for the kingdom of Christ. Do you evaluate the size of the circumstances or do you look at the size of your God? What is it? Is it the health circumstances, the financial circumstances, the relational circumstances, the job circumstances, the reputation circumstances, or is it God? Because one results in walking by faith, the other one results in cowering by fear. And if we're candid, a lot of us make decisions based on fear. We live in a fear-based society. There's lots of fear. We're afraid of what could happen. We're afraid of what might happen. We're afraid of all kinds of things. Afraid of the worst-case scenario. Afraid that we might fail. Some of us, all of our lives, some of us, are lived based on a fear of something. What somebody's going to think. Fear of failure. And think about how many products are sold in our culture just based on fear. This past week, uh, my wife... I sold, invited a guy to come to our house and do a presentation. We, uh, he offered us some free laundry detergent if we, we would listen to a one-hour presentation. And she asked me about this ahead of time. I'm like, sure, we've got a bunch of people in our family. We clean a lot of laundry. So it's great. Free laundry detergent sounds awesome. We didn't even know what he was selling. Okay, He, he comes to our house. He's going to present a product. He shows up. He gives us the laundry detergent, just like he said he was going to do. Kept his word. He was a really nice guy. And he's got this package, and we don't even know what he's going to pull out of it. And so I am not super patient a lot of times. So I said to him, uh, what are you presenting? He said, it's an air purification system. Now, let me be clear about something. Before he pulled anything out of the box, I was a 1,000% happy with the air that's in my house. So happy, I didn't even think about it, okay? He pulls out of his box the tool that he's trying to sell us, and then he pulls out this huge light. It's like, you know, Magna Super Light or whatever. He pulls it out, and then he beats on our couch, turns the light on, Shows us all these particles. He says, you know what that is? That's dead skin. That is dust. That is particle. That is microbes. And he shows us this picture with dirty faces of mine. I didn't know microbes were so angry. But there's microbes on there. And he's showing us the anger. And then I look over at my eight-year-old daughter. She's plugging her nose and holding her breath. <laughs> I can't breathe anymore. I, Ten seconds ago, I was 100,000% happy with the air in our house. Now all of a sudden, I feel like I'm killing myself. Like, what's happening? He asked us, do you, do you, would you eat this? I, no, I'm not eating dead skin. It's not fear factor. Would you, would you drink this? No, I'm, I'm, how much? I mean, but you breathe it voluntarily. He's trying to sell a product because we have this fear. Like we might be hurting ourselves. Something might be wrong. How many decisions do we do based on fear? This past week, I also saw an interview of a woman who was infected with Ebola. Um, she was an American missionary. Maybe you've seen her. She was on CNN doing an interview with Anderson Cooper. And Anderson, who is not a follower of Jesus, um, asked her, do you ever ask yourself the question, why did this happen to me? And she said, no, I don't. But I have asked, what's next? And then she went on to talk to him. I can't remember the exact question that he asked her next, but she went on to tell him that she asked God, do you want me to go back? Do you want me to go back to where I got Ebola? Do you want me to go back and minister to the doctor that, that helped me? And then she said, we'll just do whatever God calls us to do. And what about you? When God taps you on the shoulder, asks you to take the next step of faith, so what's next, God? Or is it, oh, but what about this circuit? I had Ebola. I mean, I've already, I've got some credits up there, right? What's next? You trusted Christ, you're saying, that's awesome. You got baptized, that's awesome. You went on a mission trip, that's great. You celebrate recovery, you experience freedom, that's great. What's next? What does God have for you Next. And will you do it? Or is it not a good time? I mean, the kids are small, and we're kind of at this state. We're kind of past that. We're too old for that now. Or let me tell you something. You just track through the Bible. Last I checked, God does impossible things. Amen. Right? I mean, read the Bible. God created the world. Okay, pause and just think about that for a second. It's easy to slide that in there at church. Yeah, God created the world. Got that. And the whole evolution thing, whatever. No, God created the world. And think about that. 
There was nothing he spoke. There's the world. Okay, there's some creative people in our church. Some of them are on our worship team. None of the people on our worship team have ever created music without an instrument or a voice. There was nothing and God created. Some of you are scientists. You've never created out of nothing. There's always something that you're using and then maybe combining things. Or you might make something new, but not out of nothing. See, that was an impossible situation, and that's how it all began. God doing the impossible. And then you know what you see? The first person he calls to come follow him, he asks him to do something impossible. Abraham, you're too old to have children. Your wife's too old to have children. I'm going to bless the world through your children. Come follow me. It's based on the impossible. Uh, not a good time. I'm like almost 100, okay? <laughs> hey, Noah, I want you to build a boat. Noah didn't even have a table saw. Have you thought about that? Like, how did Noah build a boat? That's what I, I want to know. I have a saw, and I can't build a boat. Did you even have a hammer, Noah? Like, how in the world did you build a boat? And I care all hundreds of animals. Like, I don't, I don't even know if I'd put my family in a boat that I'd make. Like, rowing. How did you do that? And Noah could have said, it's not even raining. Not a good time. Nope, doesn't work for me. Mary, uh, you're going to have a child. Uh, angel. There's birds and the bees, and the bee comes along. There's a pistol on the flower. I haven't done any of that. Not a good time for me. Can we wait like six months until I'm married? Do you know what the angel says to Mary? For nothing is impossible with God. Amen. And so anytime God's going to call us to do something, there's going to, it's not going to be convenient, by the way, and it is going to require faith. And last I checked, God still does impossible things. And what happens here to these people is they've crossed the Red Sea, uh, they've seen these plagues, and then they're going, no, I can't handle the giants. The walls are too big. Can't do that. Do you know what happens? God gets furious with them. An intentional word. God is angry with them. Not because of their immorality. It's not because they're not opening up strip clubs down here. They're not hooked on porn. They're not stealing money. Do you know why he wants to destroy these people? He says to Moses, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to destroy all these people. We'll start over with just me and you. That had to be slightly appealing to Moses. He's dealt with these people before. And look at what God says in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them. In other words, all they have to do is look back and see what I've done in the past. And you think about that for us as a church. What has God done for us in the, in the past? The miracles he's done. Some of you are now entering eternity with Jesus and you weren't before. There was 36 people that we talked about this year. There have literally been hundreds over the life of our church. Some of you, your eternity's changed. And you're going to get an annual report when you leave. There's going to be numbers in there, some of that kind of stuff. Each one of those numbers is a story of a person. And some of those people, some of the people are here today. We saw some of them get baptized in the video a little while ago. Pat and Lisa Dowd, I love their story. You know why I love their story? There's so many people from Southbridge involved in it. Pat is a guy who grew up Catholic, became agnostic. Lisa was Jewish. Very unlikely people to come to Christ. They bumped into another couple in our church, Mike and Mary Sisko, who are neighbors of theirs, started praying for them, caring for them, sharing with them, heard that language, invites them to come to church, introduces them to other Christians. They start experiencing the love of Christ, hearing the gospel from their friends and at church. On Easter Sunday, both of them trusted Christ, and we baptized them. It's exciting. And you know what? The, the, the booklet will say 36 people prayed to receive Christ. The booklet doesn't record a bunch of the people that y'all led to Christ. That co-workers, friends, neighbors, that are eternities different. I got an email from a guy this week. This is normal, by the way. I got an email from a guy this week who told me, he's a, his name's Rob Walt. He's in Bridge Kids. Some of you might know him. He's been influencing our kids for a long time. Great guy. Loves Jesus. Been praying for five years for his mom to come to Christ. His mom's Jewish. She lives in Las Vegas. She emailed him this week. She's 81 years old. Trusted Christ as her Savior. 81. That's awesome. You know, most people come to Christ before they're 13. And that's one of the reasons why our student ministry is so important. And most people who come to Christ, they come to Christ before they're 13. An 81-year-old coming to Christ, you know, God does that, and he does it through you. And he does it here at our church. And he, he uses other things, too. He does tangible, physical things in this world, and all just spiritual transformation. We did our dollar offering we do um, once uh, every, five, every fifth Sunday. Um, we gave enough money to Gateway this past year, and one of those dollar offerings, they said to, to physically save the life of three children that would potentially be aborted. God's doing amazing stuff. And we've got people who have gone uh, on Panama trips, Madagascar trips. And so life change is not just when somebody's not a Christian and they become a Christian, although that's huge life change. 
But then you got the people who get baptized. That's a step of obedience. You got, I get emails from people that are small group leaders periodically, and they'll tell me things like, somebody prayed in my group. It's the first time I've ever prayed publicly in their lives. That's life change. You got some, I had a guy email me a couple weeks ago. Uh, we preached, we were going through the Lord's Prayer, talking about prayer, and preached on forgiveness. A friend of mine who leads a group emailed me and said there was a woman in his group, doesn't even go to our church. They were talking about the study, though. That's what they do in the, in the, the Embrace groups. And uh, she had never talked about her forgiveness before. Never even thought about her own personal forgiveness before. That's life change. It's a step. It's a baby step. It's a step. You got people that are Christians, been Christians for a long time. Some people are Christians for four weeks. Some people have been Christians for 40 years. God's still changing lives. He's doing a work. He's faithful to complete until the day that he comes back. And we don't want them to come back because there's still a million people in our city that need to come to Christ. But we want them to come back because we want to be with them. And so that's the tension we live in as believers. And while we're still here, he's transforming us. And so you got people in our church. There's a guy that um, Bill Grimmy and his wife Judy Grimmy have led multiple short-term mission trips, been real influential in our church of getting us on the mission field and places around the world. Uh, I went on one that he, he led to Madagascar, Africa, and he's great in this gifting of getting people in their giftedness and uh, making everything go smooth for everybody else. And uh, he led a trip this year to, to Panama. So we had one that went to Madagascar, one that went to Panama. We got people that are going to Panama next week. Just prayed for him between the services. Got six people that are going there. Ten more people are going in October. And he's influential in all those. So we went to him. We said, would you be interested in being an elder at our church? He said, exciting. Love it. Can't do it. I'm moving to Panama. I'm going to be a missionary there. God tapped he and his wife on the shoulder, said, here's what's next for you. And they could said, well, we got grandbabies, and, we got, and we're at this age now. And No. That's what you want, God, to step out by faith. We've got a college student spent six months in Madagascar. Now she wants to be a full-time missionary, Anna Fulcrod. So many of you went and heard her tell some of her story. God's changing lives. And so what's next? Well, you know, we showed a picture of a building. I'm not going to ask you for any money today. Okay? So some of you have been like this since I showed a building. Building in church. Cover your pockets. I've got four pockets. I'm not asking you for any money. I'm not asking you to grab a hammer and build a wall. We alluded to Noah, too, so he wants me to do some work. I don't know what's next for you. But here's what I do know. It will require faith. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ yet, that's a huge step of faith. You're going to shift all your trust from your good works, from your life, from some hope or wish that you have of how things maybe might go someday to what the Bible actually says, that Jesus died to pay for your sins that were separating you from God. That's a huge step of faith. You're going to be baptized. You're going to publicly let everybody know that you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're going to put yourself out there relationally, get connected with other believers in a way you've never done before. Maybe you're a sideline Christian who comes in, drinks coffee, everybody thinks you're great because you memorized some Bible verses, but you don't do anything about your faith. And you're going to get in the game. That's what's next. Some of you, maybe it is a financial sacrifice, and it's time to do something. Maybe some of you are supposed to move to somewhere else in the world to die for Jesus. Go tell ISIS about Jesus. Whatever it is that God's calling you to do, are you going to do it? Are you going to look at the size of the circumstances and the size of your God? Are you going to live by faith? You're going to live by fear. So what you do will reveal your faith. You, you already have the faith. It's, it'll be revealed. And there are people here that either lacked the faith or had faith, and it was revealed in these circumstances. But not only that, not only will what we do next reveal our faith, what we do next will determine our legacy. What we do next will determine our legacy. It does for these folks in this passage of Scripture. What ends up happening, and you read chapter 14, God's furious with them, but then Moses pleads with God based on God's reputation because Moses is living his life for the fame of God's name, for God's reputation, as convenient and nice as it might have been for Moses to get rid of some of these troublemakers and the people that were complaining about the food and the people that didn't want him to be the leader anymore and all that stuff that was happening. He says, God, but the Egyptians, what are they going to think if you don't come in and do the things you promised your people you're going to do? And, and will you be a forgiving God? Because we oftentimes talk about God, like in the Old Testament, he's just a God of wrath, but we continue to see slow to anger, abounding in love, gracious and forgiving. And so he forgives these people, but there are consequences. And so their legacy forever is that everyone that's 20 years old and older will wander aimlessly in the wilderness. They'll live like the American dream, essentially. You're going to wander around without purpose, without meaning, and try and seek comfort and just basically wait to die. So that's what they're going to get. They're going to get the American dream. Then when you die off, we're going to let your kids, who you said were going to die in the desert, we're going to let them enter. And there are two people that are going to enter the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. But because of your sin, they're going to have to wait. Now, as you look at this generation of Israelites, forever they are remembered. We're talking about them thousands of years later. Forever and every time they're mentioned, they're remembered as the people with failure, not faith. 
because they failed to believe. What happens at the end of the passage is they try to make up for it. Oh, no, no, we're going to go. We'll take the land now. And they lose because God doesn't go with them. And you read it in Deuteronomy chapter 1. It tells this story in different details. You get to the New Testament. You read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For those of you who want to study this on your own, it's a commentary on what happens here about not being like these people. Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4, commentary about this number, chapter 13 and 14 in the New Testament. You read throughout the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 106, verses 24 and 25. God speaking, says, Then they despised the pleasant land, speaking of these people. This is their legacy. They did not believe his promise. So that's how they're known, lacking faith. They grumbled in their tents. They did not obey the Lord. Psalm 95, verse 10, For 40 years I was angry with that generation. That's how they're remembered. I said, They are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. Amos, the prophet, says, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you 40 years in the desert. That's how they're known as the people that were 40 years in the desert. Remember, not because of immorality, because of a lack of faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so what do we do? We go back. What has God done? We see all these miracles he's done. We see all this stuff that's happened. What's your Red Sea moment? Where's that time that you go back to and go, God, you did that, then I know you can handle. So he wiped out the Egyptians, one of the most powerful kingdoms on the earth. He can handle some Palestinian city-states here because the people are tall. He can do this. I think about it for my wife and I in our own story. And I go back to some of the things that God did when we were planning this church. And so when God taps us on the shoulder now and asks us to do the next thing, I go back to some of the stuff that he's done in the past. And I remember, I remember the first message I preached at Southbridge. Most of you were not here then at that time. And it was, tit- it was titled off of a song that I now sing to my three-year-old daughter. My three-year-old says, the so strong song, the so strong song, daddy. And the so strong song is that my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. In other words, God still does the impossible. And one of the ways that God drove that point home to us was not because we knew the stories of the Red Sea or because we knew that Peter walked on water or because we knew that David beat Goliath. You, you can know all those stories, but it's when God taps you on the shoulder and asks you to walk by faith, that's when you start to learn these truths. And what happened for us is that at that time, my wife was working as a nurse in Dallas, working with HIV patients. And we got pregnant for our first baby, and she found out that she was HIV positive. Devastating news for us. At the time, I remember thinking, we can't go plant a church. I don't want to be the HIV pastor. It was hopeless. There was no cure. There was no fix for this. We just begged God. God, take it away. And within a short period of time, God healed my wife of HIV. And we go back to that moment, and we say, God, you did that. Do you know what that does? It changes everything, because it's borrowed time. We shouldn't even be here. And so our kids, they're not ours. You do what you want with them, God. Our financial stuff, that's not ours. It's yours. What do you want to do? Our lives, what do you want to do? It all belongs to you. And what about you? What's your moment, that Red Sea moment you go back to? See, God said to these people, you go back and see. Some of you, it's salvation. Some of you, he led you in freedom. Some of you, you celebrated your cover. You stood up and told people publicly about your stuff. You never even talked about it in private. That's a new level of freedom. That's a moment. That's miraculous. That's life change. And God's been doing that at our church, in lives, in your life, in our lives, in all of our lives. And so when we think about what's next for us as a church, I think he wants to do more of the same. Continue to save people. Continue to have people walk by faith. Continue to have people to stop thinking that they know better than God and start to walk by his promises, to live according to the scriptures. Some people are going to leave, go on the mission field. Some people are going to do different things based on the events that are going to take place in the future. We don't know all that's going to happen. As a church, here's one of the things we, we believe is going to happen. I announced it to you last week is that we're going to plan our first church. Redemption Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Last week, our youth pastor was preaching, Josh Tovey, and uh, he and his wife are feeling called to go plan a church. And we're going to send them out. You know what their church is supposed to do? Connect people to Jesus for life change. You ever heard that? And so they want to duplicate what's happening here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Grand Rapids, Michigan, where they grew up, where they were born and raised. God might tap some of you on the shoulder and say, you should pray about going with them. Maybe you should go up there as missionaries to that city and try and reach those people for Jesus Christ. For some of you, he might tap you on the shoulder and say, well, they're stepping out of that. There's now going to be a vacancy there. And maybe God wants you to reach out to some of our youth, to step out relationally, put yourself out there in a way you've never done before, to get engaged in a way that would be uncomfortable for many of you. We're going to have more people trust Christ over the next year. We had, more people, we had people trust Christ last year. We had people trust Christ every year. Guess what that means? There's going to be more people that need to be discipled. And some of you might think to yourself, I don't know if I've been discipled. If you've been a Christian for a little while, you've been a Christian longer than them. So you can help them 
And so God's going to tap some of you on the shoulder and say, you need to spend some time with this person, talking to them about your faith. Some of you uh, might be stepping up and serving in any way. We believe, Lord willing, that we'd like to launch a, a venue that's different than our video venue across the hall, an acoustic venue. So we do the same thing we do in here, only an acoustic version of it across the hall. That's going to require more people serving. Um, that's going to mean we need some people on the tech team. We've got a worship leader who wants to, to lead over there. We've got musicians that are interested in that. But we need more people on our tech team. Now, some of you would be like, I don't know if I like the tech team. You might think that the tech team is people that just like gadgets, male and female that like gadgets, or people that just think, hey, they seem like they like it quiet. I'm going to turn it up, or they like it, I'm going to turn it down, or whatever. Whatever you think of the tech team, think that's not you. Well, it's willing people. Do you know why they do it? It's not because they like gadgets. It's not because they like volume or low volume. It's, you know why they do it? Because they know it's part of leaving a legacy of connecting people to Jesus for life change. People on the setup team, they don't have a passion for hanging signs, Okay. What they realize is the things that they do before anybody gets here ultimately has an impact for eternity, that eternity's change as a result of things that they do. Same as running cables, same as doing sound, same as leading a small group. God might tap you on the shoulder to do any of those things. I don't know what they're going to be. But will you leave a legacy for the next generation that you responded in faith? Because there's other people in this passage. You've got Joshua, who we didn't really get to, who later gets told he's going to be Moses' successor. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, he's given a command. If you obey this command, Joshua, everything you do is going to go well. Because you're going to live by, it doesn't mean it's all going to be easy. It's all going to go well for God's glory and your good. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, be strong and courageous. Don't live by fear. Live by faith. Be obedient. Do everything I tell you to do. And what you see happen with Joshua is he gets to see some awesome stuff. He gets to lead people across another body of water, the Jordan. You read Joshua. You go in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He gets to see walls come tumbling down. He gets to see the sun stand still because he continues to obey God, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's inconvenient, even when it seems impossible. And that's the legacy that he leaves. People name their kids Joshua. I've never met anyone named Shemua. That's one of the other ten spies. Caleb. You know what it says about Caleb? Numbers chapter 14, verse 24. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit, different than the, other ten, different than the Shemuas, he follows me wholeheartedly. I will bring him into the land he went into. And his descendants will inherit it. You know what ends up happening? You read Joshua chapter 14. Caleb, 45 years later, goes into a land that's talked about in Numbers chapter 13, the land of Hebron. Do you know who lives in Hebron? The Anakites. Remember them? Those are the giants. So Caleb gets to go take over the land where the giants were living. <laughs> and that's his legacy. What legacy will you leave? What we do next will reveal our faith, and what we do next will determine our legacy, Southbridge. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to serve you. Thank you for the opportunity to walk with you. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and want to know you. Thank you that you have people here who don't even know your son, Jesus, that we get to talk to, get to be with. And God, I pray that if there's someone who doesn't know your son, they would trust him. And I pray that we would trust him too. That we wouldn't give lip service to some decision we made at some point in our lives, but we continue to walk by faith with you. We continue to trust you for the impossible. We continue to step out when you call us to step out, and we would listen. That You would teach us to hear from you. We just finished this series on prayer, God. Will you speak to us? Speak to our hearts and show us, those of us who you want to sacrifice in financial ways. Speak to our hearts, those of us you want to put ourselves out there relationally, those of us who it's time for us to walk in freedom. And we've been in bondage for too long. It's time to walk in freedom. Will you do that? God, will you reconcile marriages? Will you break addictions? Will you save souls? Will you change this city in such a way that people would see our light, they would glorify you, they'd be drawn to you, and that you would make this a city on a hill and use us as part of that process. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.